welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 everybody, what's up? Knock On Podcast 286, that's a record, I remembered the right number. Uh, only because I just posted one. That's the only reason why. But I got Aaron Schneider, always a fan favorite. Seems like you two or us two get uh, goofy every time. So <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. How's it going, bro? Good, good. Um, I got COVID. That wasn't good, but it uh, wasn't that bad. So overall, it's kind of a win-win because now I'm uh, immune, I guess. So that's good. I know, I said that to Andy, because um, I was at Stumps last, you know, here last week, and uh, I asked him, I said, is it kind of relieving now that it's like, you know, you've got it, and you made it through, and now you can just go? And he's like, yeah, it's totally different. It's totally different. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, uh, I I don't want to downplay it, because obviously people have been affected or whatever, but... uh. I mean, I would pick COVID over the flu. I can tell you that. It, it I kept guiding. I never stopped, uh, you know, going out or whatever. We just let the clients know that we had. I had, you know, COVID or whatever. They were. They didn't care. And and uh, pretty crazy, like how, you know, you hear all this stuff. And and I was super like, okay, I can't smell anything. And I had some cold chills and some body aches, headaches. But overall, I'm pretty happy. I got over it i mean you know when i say that, i mean i'm happy i don't ha- you know other than i get yelled at for not wearing a mask because i'm like well i've already had it i don't care but uh <laughs> yeah well that's what <laughs> i mean to... yeah that's kind of the thing you almost need like a stamp like where people are like oh he's immune you know if you get like approved you're officially approved as immune did you so did you lose taste and smell yeah it was actually fairly comical i uh was uh drank coffee could totally taste it 20 minutes later my my wife was marinating uh steaks for everybody for you know throw on the the trigger right and uh she was like hey what should i put on the you know the seasoning the marinade and i was like i don't know let me see and i was just smelling seasoning and i couldn't smell it i was like no "Uh, i have covid (laughs) <laughs> and I, she was like, can you taste? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And then I stuck my, you know, licked my finger and stuck it in one of the seasonings and then licked it. And I'm like, yeah, we need to throw this uh, seasoning away. I've just contaminated it because I can't <laughs> taste this seasoning either. Um, and then uh, I ended up, you know, just helping out down there. We, we had several clients and I started working my way back up to Arizona and because I was going to, fin- you know, finish out my 2020, you know, try to kill that buck and then hunt 2021 up there. And I ended up killing a buck um, on, uh, you know, on the way up to where I was going to hunt up north. And on the pack out, I was pretty certain I had pneumonia, to be honest with you, which <laughs> I didn't. I just uh, my heart rate usually doesn't really get ever get above 120 no matter what I do. And it was spiking up to 160s and I was wheezing pretty bad. Damn. Uh, and I'm like, okay, I have officially pushed it too hard. I, I need to go home and, uh, <laughs> threw the buck in the, the cooler and 
you know, gimped my way 12 hours back to the house and, <laughs> you know, kind of hallucinating while I'm driving. I literally probably shouldn't have drove because my, my, my temperature spiked up pretty high. And I don't know, four, four or five days later, I was good to go. So Dang. Yeah, I, um, whatever kind of crazy-ass flu Andy and I got up in Alberta, you know, Andy's like, that. whatever that was that we caught, it'll kill way more people than COVID, <laughs> you know. But but yeah. no one really said jack about that, you know. But, yeah, we had five people on a deathbed for like 48 hours from, we still don't know what, just some kind of black plague blew into camp and just freaking murked 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 four or five people that normally you know would would go out and hunt all day dealing with some you know plenty of pain or feeling like shit anyway but yeah no one freaking no one manned up to that one and uh it's weird because frank like COVID obviously is uh is a crappy um, virus because you don't know how it's going to affect you. And Matt Chan is a friend of ours. He comes in and he uh, he just won the Titan Games. I think he placed second in 2000 something in the CrossFit game. The dude's a freak of nature. Mm-hmm. COVID about killed him. And then Frank, same thing. Frank Pinnacle of Fitness literally deadlined him for five, six days. Then Mike, we call him Fat Mike. Hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast. Back in the back, he gets COVID. No issues. Nothing. 325 pounds of heffalump. Nothing. <laughs> and, you know, so I, it, it's hard to say, who, what you know, because I thought, well, if you're fit, you're fine. Well, it, it doesn't always mean it, that, you know, it affects everyone differently. And Scotty, my, my buddy that I guide with, uh, he got the sniffles. That was it. And so it's just weird how it affects each person. But I know every time I've gotten the flu, I really, like, literally was thinking about jumping off a building and then COVID was like, eh, it wasn't that bad. Different yeah. for everybody. Yeah. And I've heard um, Sharon's sister got it in England. And um, she kept smell and taste. And um, there, <clears throat> there's some speculation that there's kind of a different strain. And her sister, like, really struggled for a long time. And they, like, they locked their whole their whole house and family was like on lockdown and in England it's really serious. They call you and like, if you leave your house, it's up to a $10,000 uh, or 10,000 pound fine. And you know, it was pretty stressful for the family. It's stressful for Sharon now. Cause we, you know, we haven't been able to see family in a long time and it's really hard to even know when we could, but yeah, it's weird how some people it's one way and another person, it's a totally different way. It's, I'll be happy when they figure out what the variation is, or at least when they get the vaccines out and if they work. Yeah, I've had, you know, I've got doctor friends that have gotten the vaccination and everything else. And and again, I circle back to, I'm glad I got COVID because now I don't have to worry about anything. Your asshole turn around starting talking back to you from the vaccination. I'm like, huh, I wonder, like, what are the long-term repercussions of this shot? Yeah, it's hard to know. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely too too soon to know. So were you were you down in Texas for odd ads, and then you went up and shot a? Did you shoot a coos deer? I would no, I shot a, a mule deer. Um, oh, that's but I, right. I was in Arizona for 
Oh, I did this TV show thing called Hunt Wars, and then we drove from Prescott area down to uh, Van Horn, which is by the Davis Mountains. And there was a lot of driving. Drove down there, and we had six or seven clients that uh, out at Mule Deer. And then I drove back to Arizona for what was a few days left of 2020. And then, and that's when I, I got that, shot that last buck. And then uh, that's when I, I went home to recover and cry like a little girl because I had COVID and then turned around and went back down. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's such a fun time of year to go down south, like to Texas and stuff. You know, I, I, um, it's a, it seems like a weird subject, Texas, because, there's people that are in the Midwest and they, you know, I know some whitetail hunters that just like view Texas as a whole different thing, but it seems like once people go and experience Texas and especially Texans, like it's just, that's how you have to hunt Texas. You know, Texas is, Texas is Texas. And you know, if you go there to hunt, it's like, I don't know. It's like if I go to BC to hunt bears, I hunt differently than if I went to Alberta, you know, five hours away to hunt bears. It's just very different. And, um, I don't know. I love it. I love going down there and getting out of the gun seasons and getting out of the, you know, kind of the cold time really in between rut and late season feeding. It's like a perfect time to be somewhere hunting. So I think it's pretty rad. And where we're at, the rut hits in December, January for... Yeah, right now. You know, mule deer, yeah. And then, you know, in the Davis Mountains, it's crazy just because they're like six, 7,000 feet, uh, you know, foot peaks. And so, yeah, it's super mountainous. But yeah, I, I have to say I, I've gotten some pretty amazing messages about high fence and everything else. And it's like, well, the entire state of Texas isn't high fence for the love of Pete people like how are you going to put a fence around the Davis mountains for one? It's like the, you know, especially out that it's not impossible obviously to get one with a bow, but it, it's a challenging, you know, hunt's kind of the poor man's sheep. So I, I encourage guys the out dad hunt is super fun. It's in the time where you're not, like you said, you're not hunting anything else. There's nothing really going on in January, February, March. And, uh, and, it, and it's, well, it snowed a foot while we were down there, which is crazy. I, I don't know when the last time it snowed a foot on the border of Mexico, but it did. <laughs> and uh, but it, you know, it's a fun hunt. I mean, it's a good time. Yeah, I hunt, I I killed an Audad like in early two thousands. I was down there, and I remember I was like, I was, I feel like I was south of San Angelo, if mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I can't. Yeah. I can't remember, but um. I remember like seeing some Audad like way off in a distance. And I'm like, whoa, what's that? And I was, we were in like a CJ7. And as soon as the, as soon as my, my, the guy I was with looked, he's like, oh, those are Audads. And he's like, you'll never get one of those. And I go, really? He's like, yeah, they're impossible with a bow. And I seen them, like, kind of run over this ridge, and they were, you know, when I kind of seen them run, which, you know, when they see something, they're hauling ass. And they kind of started to veer, and I just said, well, can I, you know, can I just see if I can, like, intercept them or whatever? And he's just like, yeah, whatever. And I said, all right, well, just pick me up here at night. And I ended up kind of 
flanking this side hill and I was probably like at least a canyon over and then there was like a mesquite tree and I just climbed up this mesquite tree and kind of just hooked my leg over it and I just kind of dangled up there like a I don't know like a leopard or something for honestly it wasn't that long it was probably like 50 minutes meanwhile I'm like with my binos I'm watching like my friends in the CJ7 just like bebop around this freaking whole giant place and I see him like winging arrows at hogs and all kinds of fun stuff and all of a sudden I like look and like a needle in a haystack here comes a freaking you know 30 incher just cruising like just kind of walking along has no idea what happens I ended up shooting that thing at like eight yards dangling out of this mesquite tree and when they came back he's like how boring was that day and I'm like uh I got him. And he goes, he's like, what? I go, yeah, he's right over there. I got it mounted. I've got it at my camp, actually. A lot of people don't even know what they are when they see them for the first time. You know, if you're not someone who's hunted an odd ad, you really don't know. But they're, they're super it's rad. like the devil. I know, yeah, that's a good way to do it, put it. Yeah, it looks like something from uh, the Pick of Destiny. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, did, you, did you see the photo of the one I shot, I don't know, a month ago? Um, I mean, so what, you've shot 15 animals since then, but yeah, I know. Right. But, uh, so it was funny cause we were, we're looking at moving to Wyoming, right. The, the office, the, the Kafaro up to Wyoming. And I'm on the phone with like the building commission and the governor and a bunch of other people. And we're in the, uh, like the driveway of, of the hunting cabin and a mile away, a, a herd comes over the hill and there is some like donkeys in there, giant out dad. And my two partners are like spinning their finger in circles. I'm like, guys, I can't just hang up on the governor, right? I got, <laughs> I got to keep talking. And Scotty kept looking back. He's like, don't worry, they're not going anywhere, but you need to hurry. And so finally I get done with the phone call and I hiked up around the mountain and I, I dropped down on to where I thought they would egress. Uh, just obviously with the stick, I'm very limited. Otherwise, I would have just shot them where I stood. And I'm like, well, they should come through here. And 13, 14 of them walked by me at like 20 yards. And I'm like, okay, this is perfect. When the rest come out, I'm going to get a shot at one of these big rams. And a ewe and a lamb came up to me. And the lamb literally is walking right to me. I'm like, oh, this is not going to end well. And at, at like three yards, I'm like, she's not stopping. And she started nudging her head into my limb tip and pushing on my limb. Well, she got a whiff and blew out like 20 yards and started to, you know, Matt, Matt. And I'm like, oh, this isn't good. Well, the lead ram just muscled up and just ran straight up to see what was going on and ran to nine yards to his death. And I, <laughs> I called Scotty. I'm like, dude, I got one. And he's like, what? And I'm like, I, I shot the lead, the lead ram. I, I, and he's, he's like, was that thing bumping you? And I'm like, yeah, dude, it walked, you know, he could see it through the spotter trying to figure out what was what. So pretty cool experience. Cause that just doesn't, I mean, most people tell you don't even try to shoot an Aldad free range with a bow. Like, you know, same yeah. thing they told you. And mm -hmm. it, it, if you work at, I mean, you're going to get a lot of stocks. It's just, they're very weary. They hang out in large groups. There's a lot of eyeballs. And their Physically, eyeballs they, are like freaking binos. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's crazy. But 
you know, you get a 30 plus incher inside of 10 yards from you with those big chaps. And the, I mean, it's just like an, it's an animal you don't see very often. Yep. So it's like you're hunting something from another world. You're, you know, cause it's, I mean, obviously now I'm, I'm guiding out at hunters and hunting them, but five years ago, if you said, Hey, what's an out dad about? I don't know. They got horns on their head. I didn't know anything about them. They're crazy animals. Yeah. Where did you, um, you've got a couple picks of some like really good mule deer. Where did you get those? Um, um, are you looking just at my page? Yeah. Yeah. So, there was like a giant in November. I mean, uh, so that one actually was out of my truck window. Um, <laughs> and that'll die of old age. That's kind of by like red rocks. Oh, okay. Yeah. That one can't, won't be that one. That one will die of old age. Um, they just can't be hunted. And then that other one, that big typical, that actually was uh, an area that, um, you know, I shot a, I actually shot a gun this year. I shot a mule deer with a gun with Luke and it's, it was right in that area, Colorado. Yeah. It's, it's always hard to tell because I know some of the spots you go, sometimes you just, you go as like a friend hunt and just kind of, you're never going to turn down a call. So sometimes I wonder, like, okay, is he there just, like, popping cull deer? Meanwhile, like, these big yep. daddies are getting saved <laughs> for clients type thing, you know? What, some of the areas, and we talked about that on a podcast yesterday, is because uh, uh, you know how haters, right, you deal with them too. I shot a, a cool buck, just a big forky, I don't know, whatever, in October, and I posted, uh, you know, first whitetail of the year, made a great shot. And I took him out of the gene pool for the landowner. I got this scathing email from a guy about why am I justifying shooting the animal or something. And I'm like, dude, you're, this is me. We're talking about like, I, I, I'm known to shoot very inadequate animals. Like I, I'm not <laughs> justifying, I shoot whatever. And I said, I'm just trying to let people know, like sometimes on these hunts I get to go on, I don't get to shoot the big deer. I just get to shoot all the deer. No one else wants to. And, which I'm totally fine with. I, I we feed our dogs um, wild game, so that takes their hundred pound Pyrenees right now. And so I was like, I it is amazing to me on the internet what people look for to com- complain about because, as you know, on some of these cool hunts, you don't get invited back when you shoot the booner because that's <laughs> not a cool. You know, to get invited now they will let me shoot big deer occasionally but i I mean a lot of these hunts they're just coal hunts where they're like hey come down and clean out 40 50 does and and uh, shoot some of these bucks or whatever um it's good i mean you know it's trigger time and i i I enjoy hunting whitetail i've gotten a lot of flack for it lately because dude if i had to choose between elk hunting and whitetail hunting right now because i've elk hunted for so long the whitetail hunting, it's not new, but it's its more exciting. I just haven't done it as much. And you you get to hunt whitetails a ton, but there's something different about sitting in a tree stand. It's just, it's about the only thing that will rattle me, give me typewriter leg when animals come in, is sitting in a tree stand. It just cranks me up. I like it. Well, I had I, I did a podcast. Um, I just did a podcast with Dan Stanton, and we were kind of talking about that. And, I, you know, he was saying, he was kind of saying, like, he was commending me on, on like whitetail success, you know? And I told him, I said, well, it seems like everyone kind of like knows me for whitetail, but the truth is I'm like, I, for 11 months of the year, I don't feel like whitetail is my favorite. 
but like once whitetail rut hits then yeah. <laughs> i'm like oh this is my favorite you know but uh yeah it's whitetails are awesome obviously there's like i don't know the hard thing would be if someone said okay you can hunt 21 days you can either have 21 days for elk during the rut or 21 days for whitetail during the rut because you know that would be hard if you yes. really had to like choose because they're very different but they're they're pinnacles of bow hunting during the right time you know and like no different than i would hate to to miss what type of elk i could see when the time's right because you always have the surprises but with whitetails there's so many surprises too that you you know you have it seems like white to big white tails are better at hiding to where you see stuff where you're like where the hell is this sucker came from you know i've had 40 cameras out for three years and this sucker just like shows up last night you know that that's what's cool about white tails is they i feel like they hide better yeah no and i agree and and the same thing with the the rut uh, for either animal, that would be a tough, uh, a tough choice. And hunting both of them out of the rut sucks equally bad. Um, I don't know which one's worse, but nothing like hunting both. elk when they're not screaming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just posted an elk hunt yesterday. Um, it was my Montana hunt and, you know, I started there September 1st, I think. Or I don't remember. Maybe it was September. It was somewhere in the first week of September. I'm not sure when the like when the elk season started, but whenever the elk se- it might have started a little later. But whenever the elk season started, I kind of started then, and then I ended up hunting, stopping, coming back. It like because it had this hint of it was going to turn on, and then it sucked again. And then I ended up having to go to Utah and then came back at the very end of the month. And they were finally like, they were finally doing stuff, but they were also like, it was almost like turkeys where one day the freaking you feel like you're in Jurassic Park. And then the next day you're like, uh, am I like 10 miles off today or what? like <laughs> that's what it was like the whole season and it was like i don't know it was a mar- it was it was it was way more than a marathon i called it the marathon bull just because the amount of days i put in was equal to a marathon but it was um it was just one of those and i couldn't i can't say it was frustrating cuz honestly i love i love it when you know they're there and you can't find them cuz then it gets it gets personal and then you're, you know, you're like, at least for me, I, it, I push harder because I'm like, I know you're freaking here. You know, <laughs> I know you're here. I know you're here. I can be out when it's pitch ass blackout and I can hear you talking. And then it was one of those years where, um, and I don't know if maybe wolves were in the area that I didn't know about or something, but have you had seasons where they just, they talk like, literally 20 minutes a day in daylight like 10 minutes in the morning like hey we're going over here we're going over here (laughs) and then like they say it twice and then (laughs) that's it 
this season was like that. Um, actually, it was uh, it, it was um, one of those deals where, like you, the ten minute thing, the talking was very minimal, and you know when it when it did happen, it was almost like uh, you know a, a, a mad dash to wherever you're hearing it to, to to try to get to the to the bugles because you know when you only have 10 minutes of noise making that ten, that noise making could be potentially you know a thousand yards from you and you know off of the last four days you're not going to hear them for much longer um it, it that is quite maddening uh that is very difficult to hunt elk that way yeah i agree i feel like um when that happens you got a freaking honestly dan stanton and i were talking about how you know, it seems like for the first time, it's a little bit more acceptable for people to like, people are preparing for hunting season. You know, they're not like, you know, come on, bro, it's overkill. You know, people are, there's a, there's like a, a true um, movement right now of people wanting to be in really good shape for Western style hunting. And, these types of years are when that happens and i even said you know i felt like i felt like the last day is is like good of a relationship as i have with my with my camera guy i told him i'm like dude you have to freaking keep up because i am or this thing's gonna die and you're not gonna get it because i'm not waiting and it was just one of those things where when those first bugles of the morning happened if you weren't um if you weren't able to cover a buttload of ground and get to them then there's just no way that you're going to have a shot you had to like run to the bugles get eyes on them and then once you had eyes on them um then you had some sort of a chance to intercept which is how i ended up killing my bull it wasn't like, you know, a classic, oh, he called and he came running in. No, it was, it was, okay, the sucker talked like five times and I just ambushed his ass, you know. And that's, sometimes that's, that's, sometimes that's how you're going to kill the biggest bull anyway, you know, is, is letting them talk naturally and then somehow trying to keep ground with an elk and get a shot at that time. Yeah, well, and and Dan's in the you know wild wild west, uh, northwest, whatever, in the crazy parts of Idaho, um, and it you know the different areas you hunt, everything's that you said it earlier, different tactics. I agree a hundred percent. Like to kill you know the largest bull in the group, a lot of times he's probably not going to come into calls, but he's definitely going to make noise and ambushing him is in a lot of ways or sneaking in getting closer and closer than him just working around you is definitely going to be a little more advantageous to shooting the largest bull in the area compared to you know calling him in a lot of times you're just calling in satellite bulls occasionally you'll call in a herd bull but calling a six seven year old herd bull pull him away from its cows is a lot more difficult than primos makes it look on tv it is not <laughs> easy to do yeah yeah, I don't know, and I've been to some awesome places. I still don't, I still haven't seen, 
I feel like Primo still has the awesomest places hidden. Like, I don't know. They've got some pretty freaking rad spots. I don't... Well, I make jokes about it and not in like I, I mean, I, I Primos is obviously a legend. I, nothing against that, but meaning guys think they're going to come out west and on an over the counter tag that have been watching way too much Primos videos. And I'm like, <laughs> guys, look, I've, I've hunted my whole life and uh, I've hunted elk and maybe once every year or two, you'll get a fraction of what you see on that video to happen. I mean, you do get into that that circle where you know, bulls are screaming it, but it, it's just not like it's the exception far more than the rule. It, it's just difficult to get the, to that kind of behavior for elk to make on o, OTC areas. They're just over it. They're hunted a lot. So, yeah, it's normally like a one day thing. Like where, where you get that one day where it's just everything, everything is, it's almost like they got themselves so worked up at night to where just, the, everything's just chaotically pissed off but it's it definitely is a rarity when it happens um so you got you on your way back from your covid express you got the back strap yeah i did and in, in fact it was um i didn't want to bug you because i knew you had a lot going on and i was getting like overwhelmed with do you have this release? And I'm like, no, I'll bug him later. I'll, I'll grab one. Whatever. And then you or Bailey or both of you guys were like, Hey, what's your address? And I literally like, it was like, thank God. Cause I cannot handle another. <laughs> Do you have this yet? And I understood the concept of it. Like it all made sense. And with something I was like, yeah, that, that should work. But I, you know, that the concept of it and having one in your hand and trying is totally different. So as guys are asking me, I'm like, man, it makes sense. It seems like it'd work. I don't have one. So I was, when you got, when you, you sent it, um, you, uh, normally my normal, obviously thing, I just, uh, I'll grab it, start tinkering with it, make sure I know how to adjust it. And then I'll get it set up for, uh, you know, my, my bow poundage. Um, the, the thing like with that release that is, is I, I guess like if someone was asking me and I wanted them to listen, when I explain this is if you're used to shooting a wrist rocket, um, and you've started to become, you know, a little bit twitchy, you get a little bit of target panic and you've went to a, a back tension style release, a true back tension or a hinge, but you're just so comfortable with that, that trigger release. That was because most guys that I talk with are more, you know, shooting a trigger and maybe thinking about going to a hinge or a back tension. Mm -hmm. Um, this kind of solves all those problems where, you know, may, maybe maybe you will, maybe you won't hunt with this, but it's one of those deals that everyone should have in their arsenal, whether you're training with it, you're hunting with it, um, because it's difficult for guys to go from a handheld, you know, a hinge style, back tension style handheld release, uh, and then they're scared to hunt with it, and so they go back to their their trigger. Well, this solves a lot of those, well, solves all those problems. I mean, I messaged you yesterday and was like, Jesus, dude you're going to sell a lot of these like this fixes a lot of problems and checks a lot of boxes for people on, uh, you know, in, the, in looking for that fix of, of, of the target panic issues they have right now. Yeah. I wish, um, I wish there was a better name for target panic because I think a lot of people don't realize they have target issues. They might not have like a full, like full panic, 
there's a lot of people that don't realize that even though they think they know how to make good shots, they're they're dealing with they are anticipating the trigger. And if someone that knows watches them, you know, it's it's really easy for me to see, you know, dude, you might not have full like you know, Tim Gillingham double clutch and target panic, but you definitely anticipate your trigger and you also are you have some type of a freezing issue that you just think is you waiting to be on the spot type thing. You know what I mean? Um Yeah. Yeah. As you say that, it it would be amazing well, not for the people that have the issue, if you're able to put a laser on everybody's stabilizer and see exactly what's going on, not what they're telling you, but what what is actually going on during their their shot process. Because mo- most people holding low is a uh, is an issue getting stuck below the dot. Some people it's higher, but most most I from what I've seen is lower. But when when you have full blown oh my god target panic compared to like you're talking about target anticipation a little bit, target anticipation. For most people, if you don't know what you're looking at, it's hard to, to pick out unless you know the the signs if you're watching someone shoot, where if someone just has full-blown target panic, you're like, oh, yeah, you're all screwed up. But <laughs> the, you know, I, I, I worded it a few different times on videos, kind of making jokes of the, the um, your, your, your brain tells your, your right hand to punch the trigger, then your brain says to your left hand, grab your bow, you just punch the trigger, and then you fling your arm back really hard to make it look like you executed a good shot. Well, yeah. if you watch someone do that, you got a pretty good idea of some of the issues going on in there. Yeah, it's like it's like an alcoholic. The first step is admitting it. Yeah, how, which how is which is what I said it? on my on the this last school of knock. That was week one. Oh, was <laughs> yeah. Week one was you know was literally identifying and you know identifying what kind of what target panic is and and having people make the conscious decision of um, yes, I do have this and yes, I'm going to do something about it. You know because that that really is the first step. Like you have to say, you know, hey, I'm I'm John Dudley and. I've got target anticipation, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, at that point, you need you know that you know there's not going to be any placebos. There's only going to be dedication to to fixing this thing, and that's going to be the only thing that is going to help you get out of it. Otherwise, it's just going to be a continual life struggle. Yeah, uh, let's talk about that life struggle in a little more depths um normally that life struggle starts out with from what i've seen maybe a little bit over poundage a little little too much poundage a little too long a little too short of draw lengths maybe your bow is not set up correctly at first um you know the the thumb wrapping around the neck thing is is definitely something i discourage people um from from doing and uh uh please cam don't be mad at me i I'm blaming you for that because you know you do shoot well and you do videos and then people see that thumb wrapped around the back of your neck and it works for Cam and it and it could work for other people. It's just not textbook. Um, and 
when when people start to lean a little bit too far back or or a little overbowed and the in that pin movements not not you know they're a control freak they're how their brain works the pin movements driving them crazy it's just this downhill spiral it just it starts bad and then you're ingraining those bad habits into your brain more and more and more and there'll be one day a, a Tuesday you're on fire it's it's like you've got a puncher's chance your your timing is on <laughs> yeah and you're like oh i don't have target panic i'm good and then wednesday you miss 6 out of 23 d targets and you're just and your timing's off and that all just spirals downhill and and as i'm saying this are you in agreement is that kind of what you see a lot of times 100% yeah i i always and honestly the term i got from the chapel brothers of you know, they, they'd, they'd say like, you know, cause I punched bad when I first met them, they'd be like, damn kid, you shot the woods down. <laughs> cause, you, <laughs> cause like you have those days where you don't even want someone to look at you and you're just like, I want to get off this course. I'm like struggling so bad with this. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a hundred percent that. And what I tell people what I tell people is it seems like fingers have different personalities. And for me, up until this release, which I've shot, um, did I show it to you back in, back in June? You told me about it. Okay. Um, my index finger has like a very different personality than my thumb. And he's super defiant. You know, it's just like having two different kids. And I think a lot of people are like that. So because people grew up shooting a shotgun or a BB gun and they're not probably ever taught like trigger control, it's just your index finger like points a bead at something and shoots. And it's just like it's it's an it's ingrainment. It's a subconscious ingrainment of like your years of just going out and shooting you know shooting um upland birds or what or skeet or trap or whatever and and then obviously people that depending on how you get trained with like a handgun a lot of people post so they're they're free they're they're not freezing under the target but they're stacking so it's like some of those things convert over to people learning archery to where you develop these things that down the road become target problems and so for me like with that backstrap being able to have what i what i mentally think to myself is this is a two-stage trigger just like you know with a with a good two-stage ar trigger take the slack out now i'm ready and you know i'll let my breath out and just you know control my breathing and squeeze my bicep and just maintain steadiness and then just barely build pressure until i get a perfect surprise shot and with the back strap that's how it is two stage trigger squeeze it till the slacks out and now your safety's disengaged and now it's just that slow continual pull with the elbow until you get a, a perfect break but I feel like once once you understand like what you're looking for and you're looking for this sensation of a good shot, then you start to see you naturally see results on the target to where you realize if I'm going to shoot good, I have to make good shots. And th 
like I don't I don't really know when that clicked in my head, but at some point it did click to where it's like you're not out here to shoot like to to shoot good groups. You're out here to make good shots. And so when everything that I was judging on myself was about whether or not I knew I made a good quality shot, which now I knew how to do, that is when my whole archery life changed. I mean, 100%. That's that's for me when everything was different. So uh, being that you've had target panic like my, myself and in the crisis that happens and then that revelation point or that a pit, I don't know what you want to, the moment of clarity where you're like, okay, I think I got it. Like, you know, like your, your brain has come to the conclusion that you can't control your pin float. You just have to, to deal with pin float and, and what a good shot feels like. Like I remember multiple times asking Bill Pellegrino, dude, how's my shot look? And he'd look at me and be like, you know how your shot is. <laughs> you don't need me to tell. And I'm like, yeah, well, you don't want to ask you, Bill. Yeah. Cause Bill, Bill's like. Bill has like zero empathy for kind of for any subjects. He tells you exactly how it is. <laughs> uh, and you know, with, with Bill, like I would never admit this to him, uh, to his, his face because he's Bill, but uh, I looked up to Bill at a, probably as much as I've ever looked up to anyone when I was younger. Cause I knew Bill back in the, the late nineties, right. When yeah. he was really on fire. Well, everybody should, I mean, arguably, well, one of the most he's well-rounded one, shooters yeah. you will ever find. Yeah. He's, he's for sure. One of the top, if not the top, one of the top two or three finger shooters ever with a yeah. compound. And then, and then, I mean, dude, he sent me a a freaking 30x 300 with a backstrap with his hunting bow last week. Yeah, <laughs> and he's let's face it, he's no spring chicken, right? He's not <laughs> no. 25 anymore. No, I mean, he's like 80, 58 or something, <laughs> 60. I mean, he's retired. And the thing that 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 one thing that was good with with Bill when you got advice from Bill. It was obviously advice from somebody that, that had been around the world and seen a couple of things, but it was also not a fabrication, make you feel good advice. It was like, dude, are you an idiot? No, you're not operating that correctly. You know you're not. Why are you even asking me? And so what, when one of the things as time went on that I had really come to the, accept was pin float, right? Like I cannot hold the pin. So are you watching all it. my videos and just not admitting it or what? That was my no, homework I, I, last week. <laughs> I swear, I, I swear to God, I don't. I, is that bad as this sounds? I don't have time. I, I, I don't either. I honestly don't either. Just because they were, you know, <laughs> people were asking me questions about what you said, and I'm like, well, I better listen so I know what he actually said. But <laughs> the thing is, is once you have that in your mind that your pin is going to float, and no matter what, you cannot control that, and you don't let that affect your nerves or your shot execution. Once you get to that point, like aiming at a turkey at 80 yards, if you've already told you in your mind, my God, that's a tiny target, how am I going to hit this? You're already causing issues with your shot execution, in my in my opinion. But yep. if you walk up, this is something else I learned from Bill. We walked up, it was a state 3D, and it was like a 52-yard strutter. 
four out of five people were bitching. Bill walked up and was like, that's a hell of a target. And then he tends it. <laughs> yep. And, I, and that made me like, okay, we all were complaining. This man walked up and said, wow, that's an awesome target. And I was like, man, this target sucks ball. And all I did was, in my mind, I'd already missed. Yeah, psyched yourself something. out. Yeah, you psych yourself out where Bill, and I've seen Bill shoot literally, at, at, to my dismay of him making fun of me, you know, 18 12s in a row on a 20 target course. 16, 12, something. Yeah, yeah. It was so astronomical. And he can talk shit with the best of them. He's a New Yorker. He's, you are not going to feel better as he's shooting good. There's nothing he's <laughs> going to say to comfort you if you're com- his competitor, right? Um, but you learn and pick things up like that. Like you walk up to a target and it may be a difficult one. And I'm, I'm repeating and humping Bill's leg a lot here. But he, like he had told me one time and it's stuck in my mind forever to be competitive at a pro level, you need this type of concentration. If someone asks you to drop a quarter in a coffee cup from three feet above it a hundred times in a row, if you do it and there's nothing on the line, by the third, fourth, fifteenth time, you're going to get laxed and just start dropping it and you're going to miss. But if somebody said you get a million dollars if you drop it in a hundred times in a row, that is the concentration and dedication you need each shot to be competitive on a pro level. As he told me that, I'm thinking, I have a long ways to go because I have, <laughs> you know, I'm like, uh, well, what about every fourth shot I have that kind of, you know, yeah. you have to put that type of effort into your, into your shot execution and your form, or you're just never going to be as good as you could be. Well, and I want to give a shout out. So, uh, Bill Pellegrino actually has a really good archery shop. People ask me about good archery shops all the time, but he's out, um, in Colorado Springs, and it's called the Archery Hut, Bill Pellegrino's Archery Hut. Um, so, and I know they do lessons out there. He's a great shop. So, if people are in Colorado, I can tell you he's a a very good shop. Has very good people working there, and um, yeah, I love that dude. He's awesome. But um, yeah. you know, one thing that that um, years ago. I made a decision to to like get lessons with a recurve bow. And I mainly did that because I wanted to be able to answer questions better when I was when I was in um Can they get here some EVP? Hey, who's that? <laughs> um I don't know who that is. I don't got Logan, sorry. Oh. He just walked in to tell me I had strings coming. Oh, okay. Of course you do. But when (laughs) I um when I learned a recurve and I learned like from a you know, Olympic really good Olympic coaches, I wanted to learn the right way and I dedicated myself to shooting an Olympic style recurve for a period of time just because one, I wanted to be able to answer questions better about that because I you know, just like you, you get asked a lot of a lot of questions um for things that are I don't know, things that you might not 100% feel confident in saying because you haven't experienced them. And one of the things that I learned was trusting your float is something that a recurve shooter, you have to accept because, like, I tell people I'm not, not like, rock steady with a compound bow, but I'm totally not rock steady with with the recurve. 
And, you know, the Olympic-style recurve, I was shooting, like, a ring that was, like, the size of the entire gold. I'm looking through a ring, and all I'm doing is continually being dynamic and pulling through to the clicker. And regardless of, like, how that ring is floating around or moving around, when that clicker goes, the shot's going. But you learn to you learn to you know have your pin on the target. You you learn you know the importance of trusting that float and continual movement. And I feel like it made my compound archery better just for that simple understanding. Yeah, and I think with um, well, what, what uh, example Frank Frank and I were shooting it like, I don't know, 80 or 100 yards at a Reinhardt 18 and 1. And like on arrow 4, Frank looked at me. He's like, man, I can't believe you can hold your air, your, your pin in the middle of that. And I'm like, uh, that's because I can't. <laughs> and he's like, what? And I'm like, dude, I've known you for four years. Are you thinking I'm holding my pin in the middle of these targets? Because I am certainly not. Yeah. And I was like, dude, I'm floating all over a paper plate at 80. Like that's yeah. for, for me. A paper plate. If if I had a laser on the target or on my on my bow, and you could see, I'm probably floating in a in a paper plate. Um, now I'm looking where I want to hit, and generally I hit there because that's how life works with archery. If you don't let your brain, you know, if you keep your brain out of it, and I think that uh, even my buddy Scotty's the same way. I'm like, dude, I don't hold my. I mean, I don't. Where are you holding your pin at eighty? Like, what would you say your float is? I would say 90% of it is on that 10 ring that's probably on an elk is probably 8 inches in diameter. I mean, I'm I definitely go off of it, you know, left, right and sometimes low, like I'm peaking left, right and low, but like on this exercise that I did, you should check it out. So I did a, I just did a simple like homework ex- exercise where I had people draw back and aim at a target with their finger off the trigger for 10 seconds and then just mentally record their pin, like where their pin was moving that whole time and then trace that out on a target that they have right there. Just, just take a marker and draw your whole float. And what you'll find is even though you're kind of swerving off the road a lot, 90% of the time you're in the middle of the road. You know, it's like you're passing by the middle of the road a lot. So I would say I'm probably moving eight inches around, like you said, paper plate or maybe a little bigger. But because I'm trusting it, I'm not starting and stopping, starting and stopping, starting and stopping. So I, my belief is you return to center more fluidly and faster by not trying to say, oh, I'm off. And, you know, and you like freeze up. Like, I feel like you have to just let it be continual and gradual. And you return back to the center more often that way. No, I, I agree. And I think. Again, getting your brain out of the equation is the the whole problem. Um, you know, and you see guys, well, we shot a little bit this year, for example, on some pretty crazy, well, it was your course, and, you know, the devil set that thing up. If you walk up to a target and it is a an extreme shot and a, a hard shot and 
you know, in your brain, you're, you know, you're muscling up, you're tensing, you're pressing your nose into the string more. There's a lot of different things going on. If you're doing all those things, and this was the, the thing that, you know, trying to wrap people's heads around, it doesn't matter if you're holding in a Copenhagen lid. If you're screwing all of those other things up, you're ass backwards where you could be floating in a pie plate. But if you are not letting your brain get involved in, in muscling up in certain areas of your body, you, you know, you're, you're going to shoot a, a better group. And so not to beat this dead horse to death, but when you, for example, watch someone under a pressure situation the first time, the first thing you, they're probably going to shoot low because they're burying their string, their nose into the string and fading out the bottom of the peep, or they're going to peak. There's, there's all kinds of forms of, <laughs> we could talk for seven hours probably on target panic alone, but the, the general gist of it is, is if you get your brain out of the equation, just accept the pin float and, and execute a good shot, you're in the money. You're, you're, you're home free. You're, you're going to be okay. It's all of those other things that pop into your brain and your mind during that shot execution. It, it, from what I've seen, and it sounds like what you've been saying is the same kind of crap I'm saying now. And I promise I didn't listen to, you know, copy what you've already said, but you can copy it. Well, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't, that's where you got, that's where you learned everything was me. <laughs> yeah, you and bipolar bill um the uh but when you're when you're shooting when you walk bipolar up onto a, bill he does have some ups and downs that's that was i don't think he likes my nickname for he's, him. Just, he's, got, he's just grumpy i like it but he I love, can I, be yeah. the problem is is on monday he you like you want to adopt him or i hope he's your father and on tuesday you're like this dude's the devil i'm staying away from bill i tell you what you don't want to do not to change the subject but you do, Bill protects his house like a junkyard dog. You do not want to, um, whether you're a a manufacturer or Bill takes very very good care of that shop. And I I have heard stories of him dealing with manufacturers that did not <laughs> not go well. One bow company specifically that I won't name. Um, yeah. Ooh, it was. It was not good. Like, uh, Bill can be a very violent individual when he wants to be. Well, in that case, they didn't give respect to to Arliss, his wife, who, you know, Bill's not there all the time, but Bill's probably, I guarantee you, he's probably more hypercritical of, of Arliss, and, and she knows more about archery than the majority of every shop. So yeah, I think, um, I think there was a bow company that didn't give respect to Arliss about being able to make, you know, equipment and business decisions. And I don't think that went over well. <laughs> it did not. And I, I tell you, um, while we're bouncing back and forth between archery shops and target panic, um, and you and I've talked about this before, it is vital for you to start on the right path down the road when you talk about good shops that, and Bill's very good about this, um, you need to make sure you're not overbowed, that everything is set up correctly as far as draw length and anchor points, and and that kind of starts your, your, your path down a happy path and not a sad one. I mean, how many guys do you see you walk to a local range and have a two-inch too long, your draw length's two inches too long, or, you know, all the other... Yeah, a, a good setup is is definitely 
it behooves you to, to, to have your bow set up by a professional that knows what they're doing, or you're going to have a long road in archery. That's, that's, um, one, I think that's getting better for sure. Like, I think all the information everybody's not, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of us are putting out, I think helps that a lot because people can self coach way better now. And I think archery shops are hiring newer technicians that are also in the digital media realm to where they know more about like what's going on. And they also know they're going to, if they set up someone really poorly, they're going to, that person's going to come back in and be like, Hey, why am I, why'd you set me up like this? I've watched 15 videos and they say that's, that's not right. But I do want to go back. um, Like when you were talking about um, kind of cams technique um, I want to talk about that just for a second because what I tell people, and this goes, this goes, um, the only reason I'm using cam as a, as an example is because, um, I actually want to defend him, you know, at a certain level. I don't think you were picking on him, but that's just, you know, people, people try to mock techniques and then they don't have the success of someone they're trying to mock. And there was, there's a handful of pro archers that have a technique that I would never coach, but they could also beat me a lot with that technique. And so what I've always told people is, listen, there's exceptions to the rule, you know, for the longest time, people had a problem with Tiger Woods golf swing because it wasn't what a golf coach wants to teach. But the problem is when he tried to do it a different way than what he had just figured out how to do better than anybody in the world, when he tried to do it different, it didn't work. But the problem was other coaches couldn't replicate that type of you know, something that, that he learned to make work, you know, he learned to swing a golf club his way and he did it so many times that it worked. So there's, there's techniques that I would not coach. And there's also, and, and reason being is those techniques, like if you shot, um, I can tell you right now, there's a couple pros that if you replicated their technique, you would struggle with the silverback. Likewise, you know, if you're going to pull through with a tension activated release, you're not going to want your thumb behind your neck where your elbow's low because your leverage is, is, is going to be different and it's, you're going to feel like you're pulling your bow in half, but you're not really, um, you're not really putting as much pressure on the, on, you know, the back end of that cam is what you think. So I tell people, listen, there's, there's always exceptions to the rule. So I'm not going to tell you that you can't be the best, the best archer or as good of archers, you know, what I am by doing it that way. But what I will tell you is there's only like one or two people that shoot that technique that have actually made it work. And yeah, he's one of them. Tom Crow. Yeah. Tom Crow would be the other. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You get like, you know, Tom Crow out there with a, with that freaking old Fletcher release that he shot and thumb behind the neck. And 
you know, a freaking eight in a 30 inch draw, whatever it was, it was crazy long. Yeah. An eight power freaking lens on 3d targets, you know, <laughs> and like a 50 inch freaking super stick stabilizer. But yeah, look out, you know, he was, he was a freaking assassin that way. And so I, I coach a method that 95 out of 100 people are going to be better archers when they come away. But, yeah, there could easily be five people that are like, you know what? I like having the peep down the side of my face. Or, and you know, it's like if it works for you, go for it. But for the majority of the people, the stature and the techniques that we talk about, you know, I don't want to spend time talking about the exceptions. I want to spend time talking about the people that are going to do better because it's a proven technique. You know, the exceptions, someone learning their own way. And then, I mean, Jeff Hopkins is a perfect example too, dude. Like, I don't know anyone on the planet that can invert their release hand as I much couldn't. as... As much, yeah, three my, men and a small boy. I can't even get my wrist that way. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but obviously, you know, one of the best of all time. So, you know, there there are the exceptions to the rule, but there's also the people that I personally feel like have continually repeated a method, and a repeatable method is going to help people be better you know, or, or, you know, more consistent. Cause a lot of times people that have those techniques, they can't really coach it to someone else. They're just like, yeah, I do it this way and, and I shoot good. Yeah. And I definitely, and I'm sure Cam knows that. Like the only reason I pick up Cam is everyone knows Cam and he's got that unique form. My thing is when people bring that up to me is you're not Cam. Yeah. It's that, it's yeah. that simple. Cam also runs a hundred miles there, Chubby. You gonna run out and run with him? Because Cam <laughs> did it. Like you're not Cam, and he has perfected that um, the thumb around the neck thing and shoots very well with it. Yeah. Are you going to be able to? Maybe, but it will be easier if you you know follow probably a different uh, from the beginning, a little bit shorter draw, a little bit different form. Not to say you. I mean, I'm agreeing with you. You might be that one guy that could do it. I just I keep thinking of Tom Crow. Back in the day, he was crushing dudes with like a 30 or 31 inch draw. Everything different than I tell people like don't do that. He did it and was mm -hmm. crushing dudes. But he's also like one percentile, so you really don't want to base it off of you know the one guy <laughs> that made it work or the two guys. It, it, you know that may be the direction you end up going. But it's better to start off, you know, if you're, you're you're writing your book of archery, your own book, start off the first chapter with textbook perfect form. If you need to, you know, go a little left or right from there, by all means. But but it is difficult and quite amazing that guys that shoot with that type of form that are that accurate, they've got it figured out. It's just not the right road, I suggest, initially for people to, to start with. Well, you know what's crazy is, like, you and I – come from an era of archery where the guys that knew how to do it good did not tell other people how to do it and the other people that were good were kind of a bunch of cams that you know you look at 
well, Jackie Cottle. I mean, perfect example of someone who could win or freaking just you would wonder how in the heck that guy's a pro because you know if he struggled with his trigger it was not it wasn't like it gave you the yips watching it or someone like um god what was the guy's name from louisiana that shot left-handed with his right eye yeah i remember he shot a blue yeah blue conquest uh, big dude um uh dude you're killing me that's gonna bug the hell out of me yeah you know what i'm saying right but like called it old blue the dude could shoot amazing yeah could shoot freaking un well well you're thinking of colin booth yeah that is who i'm thinking yeah so colin colin wasn't that one the other one i know his name was richard i wanted to say it was like richard leftwich or richard freeland richard freeland maybe maybe yeah um but colin you know, one leg freaking shot 80% let off with a, you know, with a index finger release when no one shot high let off. Nobody shot high let off. He shot high let off, no level in his bow. I remember that. I was shooting with him and I'm like, why don't you shoot a level? And he goes, my dad always told me trees grow vertical. So just, I line my limbs up with trees. I was like, oh, <laughs> straight up, <laughs> straight up. Yeah, he, I remember him telling me that. But, yeah, we grew up during a time where there was a ton of people that were, like, self-taught and found ways. And a lot of people back then tried duplicating each other. I mean, I remember how many people tried duplicating Burley Hall, and it that was yeah. impossible <laughs> because Burley had – target panic something fierce so like he actually would people ask him like well how if you have target panic and you and you're you freeze all the time on the target how do you you know how are you winning and he just said well i always sight my bow into burly yardage and that meant like he actually had all of his all of his sight scales were set to where he wasn't even holding on the target they hit they hit that high above his freaking pin at different distances, yeah. you know, which is crazy. You would never teach anyone to do that, but this is someone who like won a world champion that way, or even Ulmer, you know, there weren't people that had 45 freaking releases in their chalk bag. Dude, I, I copied the hell out of Ulmer with that one. I did uh, too. That was him and Bill. I remember I watched Bill drop a release and scar it. And so he grabbed his other release and scarred it to mimic the, the other one in his his bag. You know, or, you know what I mean. So oh, you couldn't yeah. tell the. And uh, I'm gonna send the, you a picture right now that I. The thing, that, that was did. a Carter Revenger back in the day. I think yeah. is what he was shooting, or a Colby. Because um, I was, I know I was shooting a Colby at one time, but uh, Tony Clem is the one who actually got me when I started shooting a hinge. Was the one that kind of got me on the right path for shooting a, a hinge style release and form and everything the, the, the common denominator that, that you see with a lot of these shooters. And it's obviously sounds much simpler than it is. They do all this. They do the exact same thing every time they have a system that works for them. And when you, when you're trying to emulate, right, you, you may end up trying to emulate seven guys before you find the one that you actually should be emulating because you're like, I tried to copy Dave cousins 
like in 2001 where my string crossed the left side of my nose. Yeah, impossible. I, I can't do it. I don't. I was cross-eyed half the court. I'm like, how does he do this? I can't even see out of my right eye through the pizza. <laughs> and yeah, uh, I still, just, yeah, I still haven't figured that one out. I've tried that one a few times myself. Well, and that's just, and then the Jeff Hopkins thing. I remember I, I shot with Bill and Jeff in Arizona at a Cabela's tournament, and I I remember what, it was a black bear at 46 yards. There was four of us. I had the first arrow. I was super nervous. I shot just under the 12 and was like, oh, okay, I'm good. I, I wasn't good. There was three 12s and a 10. I was the only 10. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm with the big boys. And I remember thinking, I'm going to, Hopkins is amazing. And I couldn't physically make my body do what he was doing when he shot. Like I, I couldn't. And no. so with emulating, you definitely, um, you definitely want to make sure you're emulating someone that's conducive to, to what you're doing. Yeah. I sent you a picture that I took when we were assembling back straps. Yeah. I put, there was like 250 in that bag. <laughs> I yeah. was, I was going to send that to Ulmer. <laughs> Be like, uh, here, I got your wrist strap bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No kidding. I remember he had five releases at that tournament at the, it was at Catalina State Park. I remember he had, I think, four or five, and one of them would not go off yep. Um, yep. in exactly. that bag at all time. And I, I liked that system. I didn't mind doing that. It helped me, especially in practice, kind of get my, my own craft together. Some people, though, which you've seen, they'll let the release go. Like their target panic oh, yeah. so bad, and then they have this bright idea to copy someone they grab that one that won't go off. It's probably going through their sight housing because that bow's going off. They're Dude, going we to... have a ton of people, like a lot, that shoot knock to its, you know, or silverbacks. That's why they have lanyards. They shoot them through the riser all the time, and you know, people are like, you know, the trigger fell off, and you know, the thing is, like, if the trigger fell off, the release would not have fired. It stays cocked. <laughs> And then you have to let it down, and then you'd be calling me and saying, hey, my trigger fell off at full draw. How do I get it off the string now? So, like, your trigger falls off when you launch your release through your bow, and that big dent on the back of your riser is where your trigger got broke off. You know, that's that's how that happens. And it's, you know, it's kind of, it's like, it's, it's definitely a target panic and a lot of people are totally not willing to admit to it, but it's, it's just like people that snap shoot, you know, they pull back and they're letting go of a string with a recurve before they even can get to a target. It's, it's the same sort of thing. But I think what's cool about tension based releases is you get that feeling that Ulmer had to have, which was he had to, he, every release wasn't the same. And with the tension-based release, you actually get that because how hard you pull on your wall from one shot to the next, or if your front shoulder's a little bit out of alignment and you're, you're packed, or, um, or if you're just trying to aim more than pull, you have a variation in what that shot feels like with the same release, which I think is key personally. Oh yeah. And, and well, I'm not going to interrupt you here, but 
it is very, very important. I think something probably overlooked of how important that is. But Yeah, yeah, I agree. But overall, I think all the different types of things people have on hand right now, um, I mean, even in your even in your realm, you know, what you teach people in the backcountry, you know, in the past people would just need to go die before they would learn that same stuff you know people like you or barklow you just the unless you knew them and got to see them somewhere or were lucky enough to go on a hunt with them you a lot of that information just was not out there you know it wasn't available it's awesome that it is yeah and and, and i mean that's with with everything obviously the the info is 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 a lot more readily available I mean, as you say that, though, what it, what is amazing to me is how many people choose not to listen or argue. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, take I, a Barklow. Yeah. He's trained the world's best sh- soldiers, right? Humble dude. He's just out there trying to help you. He's not getting paid for that, right? I mean, I guess in some way, I mean, his job's in the outdoor industry. Um, and obviously, you make some money from your store or whatever, but the reality is, is the majority info you're kicking out is free. Oh yeah, well, and you're not free, yeah. you're not Stalin, right? You're not demanding people do it. Why wouldn't you listen, right? You you you've already got your ass kicked for the last thirty years, right? You've already like you you didn't pop out and 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 was were perfect with no target panic or no issues. It takes a long time to to get to that point. So I, I'm not saying you have to agree with any everything John or me or Barclow says, but you can damn sure bet if if it's something that is is being talked about, it's you probably want to listen and at least give it a whirl, um, because you know you've already tried or me or whoever uh, tried multiple different things. Like again, the eight power scope you brought up, <laughs> I would say that's a surefire way to get target panic. Yeah, ninety nine. Not recommending that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I've had guys like, man, I I really like my six power indoors. What do you think about it for 3D? I'm like, dude, I quit shooting a lens for 3D. Yeah. I know where the 12 is. Why would I put it on there? It only makes shit worse. Yeah. And- that is a good, really good point. People that, if you magnify movement, it gets way harder to accept it. You know, for people who who haven't become, you know, a freaking expert at that trust, then at that point, you ha- you absolutely have to, like try to minimize that and so you know i tell people not trying to over aim dan and i actually had this conversation because he said that he feels like his release worked awesome when he was shooting close but out at 60 it seems like he needs to make it lighter and i i had a conversation with him of you're aiming not pulling it's a very good identifier of you're trying to either one you're trying to hold too steady on too small of a dot or you know if you had a bow that had magnification and you're seeing that movement you're magnifying it so then you start doing what i was talking about which is like starting and stopping your shot process because of the movement that you're seeing through that through that front sight so i'm a big believer in you know i practice my long range targets are big targets. You know, I have a freaking elk, I have a buffalo, I have a grizzly bear, and those are my long targets. And although I could probably put a small deer out there and 
do pretty good a lot of the time. The reality is I like being able to just aim at this. Um, I like being able to, to aim at a kill zone at 80 or 90 or 100 yards. It's the size of a paper plate. I trust that, flush that's, that float that's going on. And I, I feel like I just have way less stress, you know. So don't don't induce that stress on yourself by um I don't know by trying to trying to shoot too tight of a group or aim at too small of a target because it'll be counterintuitive. You, you know why you bring this up I I uh I totally forgot yesterday I wanted to to ask you about this. It was a question that came across my my plate and I, I gave my advice and you may completely disagree with it, but it has a lot to do with pin float form and target panic. And the guy said, Hey, do you practice in high wind? And I, I said, I practice in high wind where my body is covered. Uh, and I can just get used to, to arrow drift, figure out, you know, aiming off and you know, what the repercussions of that wind caused to my arrow. And I said, but I try to really not shoot in, in high wind myself because it's an uncontrollable movement that is only going to drive you you crazy and and if you're forced with it at that time in the field you're going to make the do, make do with the best of what you've you've got in front of you and I don't know that practicing is is actually going to help in in high wind and and he came back and said well don't you want to practice in the environment you're you're going to be hunting and I'm like well you're not going to be hunting in high wind all the time. And that's a good way to get target panic is trying to shoot in a 40 mile an hour wind. You, you just can't. <laughs> I already hold. got it you, talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was like, and he said, well, what do you mean you block your body? And I said, if I can shoot in a garage yep. into a 40 mile an hour wind, I'm golden. I can control where I aim and it'll give me an idea how much drift I have do I bubble into the wind or do I aim off and screwing around like that? I think that's good to learn that. But shooting in a in a 20 mile an hour crosswind is a 20 mile an hour wind is insane. I'm like, dude, you're just going to give yourself target panic. But what what are your feelings on that? Yeah, I'm the same way. Um, so here here at my house, um, like where I shoot. I, I know it doesn't like look awesome when I'm like, if I'm ever doing video or whatever, but I have like a 90 degree fence that kind of blocks the predominant wind to where I can shoot where I'm feeling secure, where I'm shooting. And I can, honestly, I can still learn the ballistics of my bow because I know my pins where it needs to be when the shot's going off. And then I learn what the arrow does in different, you know, in different winds. And I'm also able to, um, I'm also able to like have a way better comprehension of, um, I don't know. I have a better understanding of my bow and I don't lose confidence in my shot. I tell people I practice normally that first hour of the day and the last hour of the day when it's calmest. And if the weather is really foul, like people say, do you blank bail or, you know, do you ever just do reps up close? And yep, I do. And not like on days where I'm trying to work through target panic. I do it on days where the, where it's just not good to shoot outside. You know, I'm not going to go out and give myself target panic, uh, just to, you know, 
I don't know, just to be able to get a hundred shots in, it's not worth it. No, I, I agree. Um, and, and I, these are other things where I'm trying to, you know, make sure and let the person know, like I've already been down this road and it's not a good one. So please don't try it yourself and please don't <laughs> argue with me. But when, you know, when you, when you're, when you're shooting, um, uh, yeah, everybody's brain works a little different. Some people shoot uh, blue face better. Some shoot orange dots. You know, there's every, you know, yeah, I, I, rather than make things difficult and, and you have those guys that want to, uh, you know, go uphill both ways for five miles for no really reason other than to say it was difficult. Mm-hmm. I'm of the opinion you want to set yourself up for success in every way and maybe throw in some difficulty as you get more comfortable, meaning, you, you know, why would you want to shoot with your left foot six to 12 inches higher and angled and your right foot? Like, Set yourself up when you're getting your bow dialed in and form figured out in the perfect situation and then add the other issues later that you might be forced with. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, you're just making a a much more difficult life. And I hear people give advice at ranges and I kind of cringe where they're like, never going to be flat when you're hunting. Like, well, yeah, but this dude's just getting started. Like, don't (laughs) – get him to where he's at a good solid platform and then throw in some angles and off footing and things like that. Um, and, and I tell people that because of like the, the issues with even let's say steep uphill and downhill, I try not to get people to shoot when I'm getting them dialed in steep up or downhill for a decent amount of time because the release goes off differently. You know, there's, there's other issues with that. And, and, and that can cause some major problems in your brain and you want to get your brain in a good situation before you start throwing in. I, I mean, if you just start MMA fighting, do you want to just dive in and fright fight, you know, Khabib? No. <laughs> yeah. No, you need a platform first. And that's kind of the analogy I use. Yeah. It's a good one to have. Um, because you know, every year when I go back to, um, when I go back to like my school in Oc, and I always start like December because that's kind of when whitetail tapers down and, and it gets cold here and I really start just training indoors in my range. Like people need to understand that even though I've po- I'm possibly close to a million arrows or I, I don't even know, but let's just say it's somewhere, you know, let's even say half a million. I like having a hundred percent confidence of yeah you're shooting exactly how you know you can shoot you know what i mean um i feel like when i try to when i try to do things fancy um it it doesn't lead anywhere good you know i i tell people all the time like i know it's cool to like shoot at a a floating ping pong ball at, you know, for five bucks at, at league night, you know, for the novelty shoot, but (laughs) that can take you so far backwards in life, in the the life of archery. Yeah. Or, you know, or that. And I know like, like Mike Slinkard, I know at times like Mike really has to shoot a certain style release. Um, and I sent him a backstrap and, and he's like, he it took him a couple weeks and he called me back he's like you know what he's like i'm i'm freaking liking that i'm starting to shoot it really good and 
I think part of it is there's just those, like, those years where, um, like, Slinkard shot the X games and, you know, and I think even Almer probably got some yips when he shot X games. And I know, like, the people that were good at it were, like, Randy Hendricks, you know, who was a notable puncher that was had perfected that style. And all those things weight you know too small of targets novelty shoots um if you just learned how to shoot surprise shots and you're like really happy with how you're shooting a backstrap or a silver back and you feel like man i'm making the best shots of my life then be wary of going to league night and all and everyone's like all right put a ping pong ball you know put a bobber up there and let's swing this thing and everyone put in 10 bucks and then everyone's heckling like you should just be like just be like I'm good and walk away because that right there is like one arrow that can take you back a year. Let, let let's let's uh let's talk about pop-up 3Ds for that one arrow um <laughs> which will so Bill and you know Tipton Cook he shot oh, yeah. forever. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So Tipton lives by me now, and, and I've known Tipton for – he was the other guy with Bill to beat. And anyway, we're at a pop-up 3D in the convention center downtown sportsman show, and it ended up being me, Bill, and Tipton in the in the, the top three. I can't remember how we finished, but I was shooting an 80-pound hunting bow at this thing with a wrist rocket because they got the running targets. And anyway, it finished. There was a group of guys standing around, and they're like – Hey, man, what are you going to go do? And I said, I'm going in my garage, and I'm going to blind bail for a month. And I remember Bill going, ha, <laughs> you know, that, that laugh he's got. Yeah, yeah, that was and, almost and, uh, it. And, <laughs> and uh, well, and, and they were like, what do you mean? And I was like, this is a recipe for target panic. Like, the only reason I came down here is because I knew these other guys were here because I literally just set myself back a decade in form. Mm-hmm. And there was people like, what are you talking about? I'm like... I cannot execute. I shot a hinge for one pop up, which was a mistake. If you're in there to, if you're in it to win it, you can do okay, but it's it's easier with a punch or a thumb button. Yep. And I'm like, I literally set myself back a decade of form to shoot this thing because I'm ripping through this. I mean, the goal is to shoot fast. Yeah. That's that's not a recipe for success. That is a recipe for yips, like badly. And so, anytime you talk about those novelty shoots. I would go home, whether or not I took my side off or not, you know, but I would shoot it five feet, just getting back to that happy form, that clean break. Because if I just kept shooting, what I had just done at the pop-up would continue through and sneak in. And then you're spiraling downhill and it's like, you're back to AA, you know, my name's Aaron <laughs> and I got target panic. And I, you you got to know what you need to do to, combat some of this i guess is what i'm getting at and those novelty shoots the speed shoots where you shoot to one side and it flips around and that is all a recipe for problems oh Um, yeah yeah no question no question about it and yeah and i think during that era you know a lot of those guys like you know like jackie coddle or you know randy Hendricks or you know people that and and honestly like tim gillingham's another one like He'll, if there's any kind of target for money at it at an event, he's gonna shoot it. And I think that stuff, like you know, back when Buckmasters was going on, so many of those guys from the southeast that were good 3D shooters, 
but they were very up and down. They were all like Buckmasters type competitors too, to where they were shooting moving targets and pop-ups and yeah, it's, I mean, it might be cool to win a four-wheeler, but you know, I would have cost myself 17 four wheelers <laughs> and how many freaking elk tags I would have wasted for, you know, shooting over the moon for the type of target panic I had, you know, on a hunt, which to me is really what it was always about was just being able to be more successful as a hunter. Yeah. And, you know, you bring that up and that is something that I, I tell guys, like I hunt with a hinge I have for years. And so I don't punch the hinge. But when I would switch to maybe a windier day, occasionally I would pick up a wrist rocket and they're like, hey, do you perform back tension when an animal's in front of you? And I'm like, when I have a wrist rocket, no, I'm, I probably broke the trigger off. I mean, I like yeah. literally my brain works that way. I just yeah, can't. Like I said, my my index finger for the longest time had a, a completely different mentality than than yeah. than like the rest of my hand. Yeah, but, for whatever reason, it's like that release is sending signals to your hand that either says operate it correctly or punch it, punch yeah. it. And with a wrist rocket, my hand is winning, saying punch it. I can't not punch it sometimes. I, when I say that, meaning I still operate good form, but I'm I'm truly punching the crap out of the trigger. I still, you know, I'm not doing anything too crazy after. But if I continue doing that over and over, it would be it would be bad. You know, a shot here and there is one thing, but you you I'll you give me a, a you know 330 350 bull and a wrist rocket I'll break that trigger off <laughs> when I fire and, well, and that's just being honest I want to I want to tell you this so I went out intentionally late season with the back strap I would have hunted with it earlier but I knew like I knew I was getting content and I just couldn't be seen with it you know I was getting a lot of content and doing stories and stuff so I couldn't really have it and the backstrap does hit left of my handhelds just because the hook opens differently and it's a wrist strap. It's not a handheld, so I'm not inverting the loop. You know, your loop stays vertical. Um, so for me, it's about, I don't know, 10 clicks left is where my backstrap hits from my handhelds. Um, but I, I was like adamant about I'm going to take this thing out and hunt with it for the late season and dude i shot i shot three deer in a night with that and it felt so freaking awesome to like pull back a wrist strap take that safety out and then just have that pin there and be like okay dude pull and I felt like I was pulling three times longer than what the video shows, but I literally felt, I felt more proud of myself for being able to, to do that. Cause like you said, a, for me, a wrist strap and an index finger, as much as I can shoot every other release as good as I think you can shoot one. If you give me if you get, it might not be a day and it might not be a month, but if you put me in the right situation, I'm definitely, I'm going back to the good old days of the 1990s. Like it's going to happen. But <laughs> with, um, I'm telling you, dude, with this thing where you just, you're like, take the safety off because it's a different mentality. It's like a different process. 
You're like, take the safety off, trust that pull and pull. Dude, you need to you need to take that thing and go shoot something with it. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm going to. I actually set up um, your last. I have your. Uh, we got a range here at Kafaru, and I actually set up your bow last night with a just a a, a, a seven pin rather than a. I had a single pin on it for tournaments, and uh, I may whack it out, Dad, or something when I go back to Texas with that because Scotty, um, he he. Uh, he had the same thing, target panic, and he went to a hinge, and he's got a uh, silver back. And I when I told him, I'm like, dude, you you, you got to mess with this back strap. And, I, you know, I was – to me, in the way that my brain works, one of the reasons I, like, I shoot a click um, on, on a hinge is the, the way that my brain works is something that engages that execution. And, and on the back strap, for whatever reason, pulling that trigger um, – if that makes sense, it's kind of like my, my, my cycle of getting my shit together. If that makes any sense like yeah, that. Yeah. Turns my process. brain on. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, and now I only shot it, I did, you know, I shot it out to a hundred at my house. And the, the first thing that I, that I noticed now, actually the, the first arrow did not go well cause I didn't have it set up quite like I needed to. But once I got the tension set up, you know, correctly, it is a very smooth, comfortable at home. As weird as this sounds, feeling because I've shot a wrist rocket off and on so much. Yeah. But it l- literally was like, okay, here's a wrist rocket with all the benefits of a hinge or a back tension, and yeah. so it was much more comfortable, especially for a guy that's that's wanting to hunt with a wrist strap type release. And to me, when you have an animal come in and then I put my finger on that trigger, that is like that. Final friendly line. All right, dude, get your start the execution. And 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 it may be just the way that my brain works, but I can see how that would be very advantageous for anybody shooting that release to kind of kick in their 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 shot sequence. Yeah, for sure. And the the one thing I guess the full disclaimer I've got to say um, is, and I, you know I'm not like pumped to say this, believe me, but those things sold out, which we expected. A, a, we we did expect a fast sellout just because it's really hard for us to to keep on top of you know how things are going right now and no matter honestly no matter what we do like we can't match the demand so i know that like that whole first batch which we built for months sold out um in like 30 hours and i know that there's going to be another batch that you know we're working on building now and what's hard is we already see the back order list is so big to where we're trying to build we're trying to build more than what the back order is so that when we put them on it's not like you don't piss off a jillion people right away so there's almost more of a delay in when they get put back on because we need to make sure there's enough to fulfill like how many people are on the back order. And then we start from square one again. So the best thing you can do is go to the website, uh, click on the backstrap and just sign up for the notifications. Um, and when you get that notification, I'm just here to tell you, do not jack around. You screenshot more than anyone I know. Um, Dude, it's ridiculous. I didn't even think you could hear that. My bad. Yeah, we've all heard them the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've got 
people, I told a few people that I was doing a podcast with you about the backstrap. Sweet baby Jesus, I'm getting overloaded with questions <laughs> with covering in the podcast, thank God. Well, are um, are you wanting to do a Kafaru cast too? Man, I was going to, I got Chris Rowe coming in, so maybe tomorrow or the next day. I yeah, well, that's what I mean, like whenever, just, just tell yeah. me and then you can, you can get some of your questions together and we'll, we'll do one your way and, uh. That'll be pretty awesome. I actually, while we've been talking, I got a, I just got a email the, for a final edit for the mule deer hunt, which will be pretty cool. So, um, that'll be pretty awesome to be able to, to see that come together. Um, and someone told me that, that, uh, Alex was telling the story and said, I shot him through the neck. I actually never shot him through the neck. So. Where was that? I think he was on like Gladiator Unleashed. I think he was just telling the story kind of about, you know, well, the same story you and I talked about, but it just goes to show you like as time passes from for anybody telling a story, it's like, yes, my first shot when I shot the sagebrush, you know, I did hit the, I guess, I don't even know, what would you call that? high in the back <laughs> well i mean basically just well the, the taint um i mean you you were basically pinwheel left and right just straight up and blew hair off its back as yeah what. yeah and then you know luckily got in for the for the stock that everybody will see which is which is good because the first one it was so freaking thick in there you know people wouldn't have been i had it on my i was doing a little live story with it that day but people wouldn't have got to see it like they're gonna get to see it now which is cool it was a that was a legit hunt i appreciate you telling me to go out there that was fun yeah that it was that the eastern colorado area is just it's just cool uh this year was not a great well i'm sure he told you that was not a great year i mean they took some good bucks you shot a great buck it just um was it gonna get out yeah, yeah, it's a drought. For sure, that that was everything to do with it? Man, it seems because there's no diseases going on. You know, there was nothing out there that's popped up from the biologist standpoint or anything else. It just seems like it was the drought. And they killed the 257. I think yours was mid-high 190s. They shot some other 200s. But as it, good a deer as they took and like the one you shot was great, it's usually better. And I, I'm sure he told you that and he wasn't BSing you. It actually, normally there's there's just more and larger deer per day. And I mean, for whatever reason, it, it, it is what it is. And I know he was trying to find that dropper buck for you. Um, and I don't even, I don't think they ever found that buck ever <laughs> after they first saw it. So. Yeah, I don't know. He kept telling me like, man, I really want you to get a good deer. And I was just saying like, dude, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not like you because like when we were driving around, he's like, "Oh damn, that thing's a freaking dink. That's total Aaron Buck." I'm like, "God, dude!" He, like every single, he's like, "Aaron, shoot that. Aaron, shoot that. Aaron, shoot that." <laughs> and he just keep driving. Aaron, shoot that. And he just, and I think he called. He's like, "Hey, get down here. There's a whole bunch of Aaron Bucks out here." <laughs> oh yeah, he lets me every year shoot a coal buck, and I think that, like the the thing he like he had. I mean, it's always easier, but. I'm not blaming it on my weapon. It's just a simple fact. I've limited my distance from 80 yards to around 30. 
Yep. It's not that easy to get within, um, you know, range. You can. You shot. You shot yours at twenty three, right? Something like that. Yeah, twenty seven. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, but with you know, considering he's just letting me run out there to shoot a cold buck, I'm not going to be able to suck up two guides in half the day, or a full day for more than a day because he's got so much crap going on. So, you know, there are times I'm like, Alex, why don't you pick up the recurve? Let, let me know how it goes. You know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm more than, if I shoot a five-year-old cold buck, I'm ecstatic. But there, there was a lot of, there was, you know, obviously other than him giving me crap, there was a lot of cold bucks out there this year, more than normal that were older age class deer that just had crappy racks. It's, I mean, a pile of them more than I normally see. Yeah, it was, in, it was such it was such a diverse hunt, just meaning like day one through two or three was like we're gonna kill a buck in corn stalks, and then all of a sudden it's like okay, these cornfields don't have the bucks that we're that we're after, so now we're like right back to good old fashioned mule deer hunting where you're just in just you know dangerously thick crp stuff which was you know which was kind of kind of cool you know you go from like oh i'm out here to like shoot a mule deer and corn stalks to all right well that would have been cool but now we're just back to good old-fashioned sagebrush shooting yeah no kidding yeah it was a cool it was a cool hunt in general i mean uh you know Anytime you're spotting and stalking mule deer is a, a cool hunt. Unless you're not seeing mule deer, then it's not cool anymore. So that uh, that buck you killed it ended up being in the mid 190s, wasn't it? Low 190s, somewhere in that neighborhood. I mean, you know, I'm just really big on score. I have no freaking idea. I didn't know. If, <laughs> I, yeah, I, just, I didn't know if you guys threw a tape on it. But he did. I know they buck. did. I know they did. I know they did. But I'm I'm just. They're like, you know. Do you want to know what it is? I go, I I literally do not care. This thing's freaking rad, and it's going to be just as rad. You know, I don't know. I'm just not a score person. I was, I've I've been a score person a few times in my life. One was on a bear that I thought was going to be like 22, which I knew was kind of a pinnacle. And then another time, I shot an elk that um that I was certain had the longest main beam that I would ever shoot. So I kind of wanted to know how long it was. And so we kind of measured the one side and the, that one side with the spread, you know, would have, if his other horn wouldn't have been injured, you know, would have been, you know, like a 408 bull. Um, I wanted to know that, but it's not like I wanted, it's not like I told everybody what he scored. That's just, I don't know. I don't really care. I'm kind of like you. I just like shooting. Yeah, and that's the as long as it's an older animal, I really don't care. And to my, you know, I get made fun of for that. Like I, I shot that cold buck with Alex, five year old deer. It's like, dude, you shot a dink, and I'm like, dude, you sh- told me to shoot a cold buck. Yeah, this is the definition of of a cold buck, you know. Right. But for for me, I just like hunting, and if I can shoot, you know, try to target older animals, the the score is kind of inconsequential. I mean, you always like, oh, that's a big deer, but I don't get into it like some of those guys where you know it's you know two oh seven and six eights, and then it's like, all right, well, it's a big ass deer, it's gonna look good on the wall. That's about as far as it goes for Dude, me. Dude, Alex, 
was freaking calling out score like to the freaking tenth of an inch like through the spot and scope and I'm just like how does your brain working right now rain man like I'm just looking at this deer going like please bed right there please yeah. please go right there I you know I got perfect navigation wind's good I'll be able to come up you know I'm thinking that and he's like dude that that flyer's like it's five and a quarter. It's five and a quarter, and, and you know, he's got good mass on this side. I mean, he's going to be like, you know, 193 and some change. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, no, you know, we, we had uh, Doyle Moss on the podcast. We were talking about that. And, you know, I guys asking about, you know, what optics, what spotter. And I'm like, you know, the bottom line is if you see a buck and it has a good rack, do you need more info than that? Nope. Like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I don't know. I can tell you on public land for elk, if it has a rack that is anything remotely close to decent, I do not need a spotter because it's public land and it has a decent rack and I really don't give a shit what the G3 is. I'm going to go shoot it. And some of those guys, you know, duct taping 285 spotters together. And I'm like, wow, Whoa, man, that, that's our next level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is. No, and that's that's why I love hunting Alberta so much um, because it's all, like, crown land where I'm at. And yeah. I love, like, it has to have three on one side, I believe. I guess don't quote me on that. I kind of try to stay fresh on my rules before I go somewhere. But um, I think it's it has to have three on one side to be legal up in that northern zone. And, dude, there's been times where I'm at full draw, and I'm like, does he have three on one side? I mean, I it's not like I'm going – I really want a 270-plus. It's like you're up there, it's season's open, and you've got a – you know, there's a couple different species you can take. It's like I want to freaking shoot an elk again, you know, and yeah. – and, I don't know. And it and honestly I feel like bow hunting stays fun because of that. I really don't ever want to get to the point where I'm like mad because well, when we were there, I mean, you know, I was there with with uh with my buddy Wes and I was like very persistent to to Alex. I'm like I don't want to shoot the biggest like let I want Wes to shoot the biggest thing that we can find. And he's just like, all right, well, we'll all be looking. And I'm like, yeah, but if we find something big, I want to, like, be able to call and say, you know, hey, bro, we found a good one here, and you come take him. And he was just kind of looking at me like, okay. But, yeah, yeah I don't mind just whacking. And yeah, I'm well, and again, for me, the moment that doesn't become fun anymore, maybe I'll reevaluate, but – some of the funnest hunts I go on are coal hunts where they're like, come in here and shoot 30 does. Like mm -hmm. sign me up. Yep. I'm yeah. Good. <laughs> I love those. Yeah. Those are the best. All right, dude. Well, I appreciate your time this morning. I know we both got to get rocking, but, um, I will check in with you again. I want to know how you get on with that, uh, that backstrap on a hunt. I hope you have the same experience I did. I mean, I, I was, so freaking jacked to do an actual hunt where 
my index finger did not wig me out. It was really cool. <laughs> I hope you no, have the I, same I feeling. I, I I mean, it's pretty much from the moment I threw it on, I started dropping bombs at 80 and 100. I'm like, yep, I can hunt with this. The uh, the, the hinge is going into the backpack. Like, this will work perfect. But yeah, I'll keep you posted, man. And, yeah, I got a guy coming in. He's here for a podcast. But let's knock one out on mine in the next couple of days, cover some other stuff I've been writing down. So I, yep. I appreciate it. I'm home, so just let me know. Cool, dude. Right, Thanks, cool, Aaron. Man. Knock on yep. everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com